KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program. Today with a very special Christmas uh, episode, we are talking uh, movies. I have this, I have this other uh, film-based podcast, but uh, never talked movies here before. We're here with uh, Derek and Connor, and we are cracking open It's a Wonderful Life, 1946, Frank Capra. And uh, basically looking at it through a, through a Georgist lens, we are looking at how the movie looks at the urban form, looking at how it deals with the world of banking, with a bit of history about uh, savings and loans as an ideological and political vehicle over many, many decades. And also talking about kind of its, its conservative, strange vision of, 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 of property ownership. But overall, we had a bit of fun uh, talking about it, so uh, let's uh, just uh, get into it. So uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Derek and Connor, for uh, for being on the uh, show to talk about the uh, talk about the movie and, and break it down. Yeah, uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, this is you know one of my favorite movies. Um, I'm a big Frank Capra head. Uh, I really enjoy Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Strateg Goes to Town and whatnot. So meet John Doe. Oh, I haven't seen that oh, one that yet. That one no. rules. That one rules. Yeah, it's very hard to watch this with with like fresh eyes because like it is like such a famous movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think everyone's like memories of watching it, but when you really watch it, it is a oh. well put together. Like it, it suffers from its fame in some things. It's like it really is a beautifully shot, framed, you know, and and expressive, uh, you know, kind of you know, uh, slice of life uh, film. Uh, but uh, yeah, and uh, Connor, thanks for being here. Yeah, yeah, happy to be here. Uh, you know, I, I I remembered this movie being uh, a lot more boring when I watched it uh, last time, which was like I was twelve. So. <laughs> That is a lot more uh, entertaining. Yeah, but uh, this isn't really so much like a film appreciation uh, show. This is we're getting the ideology of, of things, and also talking about construction financing. Uh, it's it's a main main plot of the movie, but uh, I don't know how much we like background we need for like you know what happens. I think most people have seen this. Most people know what goes on, but we'll we'll, we'll kind of break it down bit by bit. Uh, it is uh, the movie is about the city, Bedford Falls. Bedford Falls heavily implied to be in New York. You know, explicitly in the film, uh, there's one point says I need to get to Elmira in a in a couple hours or something. Uh, but in real life, it's like I think loosely based upon Seneca Falls, New York, in the Finger Lakes region. And I think comparing that to like you know what this is like within the film, what like describe Bedford Falls? Like what is what is the industry of Bedford Falls? Like what what makes it tick? The economy of Bedford Falls feels very vague uh, to me. Yeah. I was I was seeing like it's described as both Seneca Falls and Bedford Falls are mill towns, which is that I don't think that's explicitly in the film, but maybe just the fact it has falls in it is the implication. Yeah, it, it I, I, my my sense is that it's like a kind of a Western New York, maybe like Pennsylvania type town that developed in like the early nineteenth century um, along like Erie Canal led development kind of thing. And it has, you know, the artisans and the small factories, and it, but it doesn't necessarily have the kind of like what you would expect of kind of the urban proletariat that you'd expect in 1919 when the movie starts. So it's it's got manufacturing, but it's small and they kind of have um, they have their own kind of small artisan economy, but there's not like one um, major employer, so to speak. Yes, and I think I think in the real life, which I don't know if you should like map on or not, uh, uh, but the Seneca Falls apparently, after being a mill town, really got kind of geared up into water pumping, Gould pumps. Uh, they say like Gould himself was 
perhaps the inspiration for Mr. Potter uh, in the movie is being kind of, you know, the, the town monopolist and, and so on. But I, I, I mean, that's kind of like the the general frame of like, you can talk about big cities and their development, I think more of a frame of reference. And I think within the, you know, 19th and 20th century concepts, as they, as small towns urbanized, almost regularly you're talking about one major employer because it's, you know, it's hard to have differentiation. I think people might want to assume, like, I mean, you're going to have, like, kind of, you know, essential goods on a main strip, and you see this here in the main strip, but, you know, it's, you're probably not going to have a huge of export industries in one spot. I mean, right. one, get, one gets the sense that the, that the, fi- that the uh, you know, Bedford Falls is, you know, relatively old, right? I mean, we'll talk about this later, but, you know, there's a Victorian home there, so uh, mm. it's been around for a hot minute. It has a, uh, you know, kind of uh, bustling urban center with, you know, caught a lot of, uh, you know, retail space, um, you know, restaurants, bars, uh, you know, seems relatively, uh, you know, prosperous, um, at least as, you know, my understanding. There's a lot of, I mean, I'll say this, every time there's like a street and like even the side streets where people live on, there is so many people walking around all the time. There's just like a ton of like just people doing stuff, which I don't know if that's like, that's the, the one of the key questions here. Are we talking about Bedford Falls kind of like within this movie? Because like it's fictional. This is a fictional town. Or is it like the fact it's fictional is interesting because this is kind of how Hollywood in 1946 was imagining how a small town should be. And I think that's kind of what's interesting about it. Yeah, a small town in the 1920s for the most part, right? Yeah. So we're thinking of like what people in who maybe who lived in Los Angeles who had moved from the Midwest or something, how they might have recalled their their youth or their parents' youth prior to coming over. So yeah, I think that's definitely it. Like the streets thing I think is, is really interesting because it's like the perception of those streets, in especially at the beginning of the movie when it's 1919, is – there's pedestrians walking right in front of cars and there's carriages and there's bicycles and there's horses and there's um, carts. And it's like just a free for all. And that, I think that's like, there's exciting, there's excitement and there's um, just like, even if it is a small town, you can sense that like the street is a public square to itself. You don't need like a big uh, concrete acre an acre of concrete to create a, uh, a forum it's the streets the where people actually congregate yeah the movie does try to say you can have it all you know it's like you can have your private wonderful suburbs but you're always going to have the city core in the, in the in the village green and so on which is perhaps fanciful based on what like actually kind of came out of suburbanization but uh yeah let me just say you know it inter- like we see we see different snapshots over years 1919 1928 1932 1935 and then you know uh, we kind of finish up in 1945 uh but you know it's it is like this main set it was built built for the movie uh inherited apparently like the main strip i'd like to re-see it i was looking at some some images of uh cimarron uh the oscar winner from 1931 do you, do you know this movie no De- i don't deranged movie uh not a great movie irene dunn i forget who else but it is a movie about the story of oklahoma uh from the rush to like it is about like one city osage that's like this backwater town and then by the end it's like skyscrapers everywhere which i'm not even sure that's even true <laughs> anywhere in oklahoma but uh they apparently inherited that set and then re- refurbished it uh, but this is my first complaint then of the 1919 shot 
there is like six cars we see and not a single streetcar. We don't see a streetcar or a bus anywhere in this film. I don't know if that is, you know, if it's just hard to bring that onto a set or what, but I, I want to see, <laughs> I want to see a streetcar if, it, if it's back. Yeah. Now. Can we get more period pieces about, uh, you know, electric streetcar, urban, uh, inner urban era, yeah. small town America. Think- it's, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that a city that's in like New York state or Pennsylvania or whatever, like would not have an interurban um, line attached well, no. to it. And, and in fact, oh. look up, look up maps from like the early you know, decades of the 20th century in Seneca Falls. They had, they had an electric interurban. Uh, it ran through the main strip and went down to the, uh, the town to the left. I forget the name offhand, you know, right by the finger lakes. And I believe it operated, you know, until, the late twenties, early thirties, or so on. But you know, they, they they. I think this is one of those instances where maybe the set design of like they they I read that they imported or they planted twenty mature oak trees into the street median for the set, that which is like three blocks long and four acres in in terms of area. Like so, maybe like the idea of having the aesthetic visual of the street trees prevented them from stringing up the wires to do. Oh, that's a, interesting. Uh, a tram. And yeah. so I feel like, which is like perfect. But if you think about it, 1946, right? Trams are, you know, on their way out. And so you're like, well, why would we do that when we can have a, you know, a nice uh, street median in terms of the visualization? And it looks good. I'm not, I, I think, I think that having this, the trees in a lot of those shots makes it a, a interesting, like good looking visual, but it like in terms of verisimilitude, they, they certainly lose out for that era. Yeah, I wonder how much this is like, oh, it's not worth it to actually try to have even like lay rails have wires, certainly, if there's going to take anything away, it's just difficult, versus how much of this is, if you're being nostalgic in 1946 for, you know, circa 1920, are you just going to say to yourself like, oh, yeah, let's just pretend cars were always the thing, <laughs> you know, there's like, well, the t- yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that was, you know, I think throughout the film is, you know, Bedford Falls is timeless, I, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it, it does change from, you know, as the story progresses, and certainly when, you know, you get to Pottersville. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to that idea of you can have it all. Um, you know, at the beginning of the film, we see, you know, young George Bailey, you know, run kind of between his, you know, job as sort of like a, a soda jerk, a soda jerk at a uh, druggist, um, you know, what, you know, you can assume is within a block of, you know, kind of the uh, building and loan association that his, you know, father is chair of. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, throughout urban cores during this period did see a significant change and would continue to change, you know, kind of after the events of this movie takes place. But I feel like if there's this, uh, you know, definitely this myth of what cities, you know, have always been that I think, you know, limits a lot of people's imagination. And you kind of see that uh, founding myth uh, in in this movie. Uh, I, I think it, it it is I think easy to take now you watch movies from the silent era a lot of times they have like urban images which are I think alien to, to people and if you show kind of like what how people lived in kind of strange apartments modest apartments boarding rooms and so on I think it's kind of hard to say like oh people live that way and this movie starts at a moment we, we like 1928 George Bailey jokes to his mom oh this is the boarding house uh, and, and, and later, 
uh, we see uh, this this horrifying alternate uh, path where it is a boarding house. And like, this is the thing. It's this kind of whitewashed, you know, kind of idealized past in which everyone always had their own house. Well, in terms of, you, Connor, I think you were talking about how like there's a sense of ideal, like the street is the idealized, right? Like there's, it doesn't really change at all. But I, I do think it shows conflict because you see, or or the you, it shows change, but that change is, static within the 1919 to 1946 like for example at the beginning of the movie when young george bailey runs out to go talk to his dad uh to ask his dad about this uh filling the, the pills with poison yeah um he goes out and he sees mr potter's carriage and so this is 1919 the local like t- town elite is still riding around in a uh, gilded carriage right which i thought was a fun kind of note because it's like this guy's too proud like he doesn't want to be the the guy getting the the hot new car he's too proud and he's a late adopter to it eventually he has a car but you do see some level of change also i think a fun kind of i'd say conflict not change is when um uh george bailey is uh hailing a cab and he sees violet and you know the, all the ernie the cab driver and the cop Bert, the cop are are ogling at her and an, another pedestrian is walking across the street and looks back at her and then a car almost runs into him and honks the horn that we're starting to see the conflicts between cars and pedestrians it's on the screen which i thought is like pretty cool like like that is something that did definitely did change between 1919 and 1928 and uh so like that i think there is like those subtle changes uh but i definitely agree in terms of the it, like it is an idealized form like, but Mark, like when you talk about like, there's a sense that there are slums in in 1946 real world Bedford Falls, right? We know there are slums. We know that that there are people who are renting homes from Potter's Fields uh, who are stuck there. Yeah. But really, the like the horror that that Pottersville shows is that it's George Bailey's family. His mother is so um, put upon that she has to rent out her house to strangers, to old men who don't have wives, who can't cook and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it so it's not that it doesn't exist, but it's, but it's like the submerged middle class is what is like the, really the danger. So it's like there are, there is hierarchy and there are people who are clearly better off and, and worse off in the real or the Bedford Falls, so to speak. But it's like the luck of the draw uh, in Pottersville of like, yeah, you might end up being that person who catches the bad break and that you could be running a boarding house or you could be a librarian, uh, a maid, old maid librarian closing up late at night. So I think that, that is, I think, the, the, the dis- distinction there. Yeah, it's, it's the first home invasion thriller in the home invasion is the boarding <laughs> boarding rumors invading their 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 uh, family home. So I, I think like like that's it. Right. Like and, and you know, I, I haven't seen this movie for a while, but really this you know entire thing is is about urban policy conflict for like the vast majority of it. And, you know, I, I think like just, you know, starting at the beginning of the film. You know, you know, what do we see, you know, kind of beyond the, you know, anecdote where, you know, George Bailey, uh, you know, deals with with the poison stuff, which really only serves as like, you know, a plot point for, you know, kind of when he meets the angel and goes to Pottersville, et cetera. But, you know, uh, there's, you know, talk about, you know, kind of, you know, what what's going to happen to, uh, you know, the building and loan uh, association. And, you know, really the first time we're really, you know, kind of introduced or the first, you know, line that, you know, Mr. Potter has in this film is he's arguing with, you know, George Bailey's father 
um, about, you know, him being, you know, too spendthrift, being too, uh, you know, kind of like loosey-goosey with, you know, kind of lend, you know, doing mortgage lending uh, to, you know, working class people in Bedford Falls. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great lines, you know, later on about, you know, uh, you know, Potter, you know, Mr. Potter really wanting a, uh, you know, a thrifty uh, working class. What does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And, you know, kind of sees this, you know, kind of, you know, loose mortgage lending as, you know, both a threat to his wealth and prestige, but also kind of a, uh, you know, uh, it, it, you know, kind of disruption of, you know, class dynamics that he sees as, you know, natural and, and good and positive. And whereas, you know, the Bailey family is kind of acting as sort of this counterbalance whereby, you know, having, you know, loose credit institutions where people can, you know, get out of, you know, Mr. Potter's slums and, you know, get into a, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, own their own home. That's like the, the central conflict here. And I, I just think like, like debt and who gets access to debt and credit uh, is really the central conflict of this. And I think it's just kind of interesting, you know, maybe how audiences in 1946 thought, you know, how b banks should operate and off, you know, how they should offer credit uh, compared to, you know, maybe post 2008 where, you know, I mean, there was, you know, an entire recession, uh, you know, kind of, dealing with you know banks being too loose with yeah. their mortgage lending you know the you know subprime you know mortgage crisis yeah i feel like it's like it, it maybe we can kind of you know move ahead and kind of where the characters are what i mean i well one one kind of framing of how this it is it is about how you don't need to leave the small town small towns are a viable form they you can live your whole life there be happy when we start off george bailey when he's a young man in 1928 he's 22 years old he his dream is uh, that he is going to be a master builder. He's going to become Robert Moses of the world. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Uh, in fact, later in life, he like has a nook in his living room where he's like a just a giant bridge model, which that's that's pretty sick. It looked like a Golden Gate Bridge model. Yeah, it looked exactly it looked like. like it, and with the big skyscraper. Yeah, and he had also point. had a he also had a skyscraper in there too. Like yeah, so like imagine him being the hobbyist like doing his his architectural models and whatnot, um, trying to like pine pine away for if he had been able to catch that train or or whatever it was. But yeah, definitely he's seeking to do a lot more and then build big things, right? Like he's not looking his dreams are not to build a subdivision. It's or, or offer credit for people to do so. It's to like build the the muscular modernism. Uh, kind of like the Fordist muscular modern modernism of airfields and hundred story towers and bridges and move man and machine and, and accomplish these big things. But instead he's kind of pulled back into that kind of like um, kind of populist or kind of a, a artisan agrarian type of small town. Yeah. And so we're talking about, I think Connor, you were talking about like the tension between um who gets credit and who doesn't, you know, in terms of the, the bank offering very stringent um, loans and then the the building and loan being a little bit looser about who they're going to give up um, credit to. And I, I do think it's like, it's also a push pull spatially, right? Not just like based off of who, but like, you know, obviously like just based off of the development pattern that we see at Bailey Park, like that 
the credit that is being offered out to uh, Bailey Park is going to be sprawling subdivisions that are accessed by car. We see, like, when we go to Bailey Park, everybody gets there by car. They don't ride the the bus, which we don't see, but we know exists because Potter owns it. They don't ride any kind of tram. Uh, they don't ride a bicycle. They don't walk there. They ride a car. So, like, the 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 pull of that credit, of that loose credit, is pulling people out of the city center, which I think is so interesting to think about that, like, the, the the forces of kind of of um, dispersion of the city, which were very real, like people people both on an individual level wanted to get outside of the slums, but there were like social hygienists, you know, who wanted to clean the slums up by spreading people out and reducing population density uh, for like a variety of good and bad reasons. Um, but just to say that like. The, that credit has a spatial dynamic where people are getting pulled out. But oddly enough, like there's no recognition that like people getting pulled out of that, that urban center is probably what's going to lead to Potter's, the future of Pottersville of boarding houses and dive bars and strip clubs and all these kind of things that, the, that like George Bailey pulling like investment out to the periphery is probably does more to, increase that decline than you know anything else right i mean that, i mean that's the sense like you know frank capra definitely wants you to think of you know downtown bedford falls is like you know I, I don't know what the equivalent would be to you know Times square in you know the early 70s or something <laughs> yeah after it's all a few neon lights ruin the whole town but but in the in the like clearly like he, he wants you to think that in pottersville yes. but he there's yes. a, certainly an affection for downtown Bedford Falls. When there's no neon lights, when it's just a nice, pristine, basically it's a living park. It is, it is nice trees, but it's also circulating people. And yeah. it's the idea that in time, I mean, honestly, no matter which is happening, I think, you know, I don't know how long the Pottersville churn will last in, in, in a place like that. But, you know, you see the future of as this centrifugal force happens in Bedford Falls, you're probably just gonna have a dying city core. I know this. Like, go to Elyria, Ohio, you know, the, to the town square. It looks just like Bedford Falls in a lot of ways, except it's always empty and it's full of like essentially scuzzy stuff because there's no demand anymore. But I mean, if you just go back to it, like, uh, you know, one, uh, you know, I think at this time, especially throughout the '40s, there was probably no more like moral thing to be like upheld of the problem of the slums. This was just seen as like some huge weight on society that we didn't really know how to deal with. And I think there are different tools to deal with it in different ways. Uh, I think in the city, I mean, it, it led to like just basically anti-city action. Um, you know, I, I think in that's the idea, like in a city, there's all these people who lack autonomy in their lives. Uh, you know, I think that's the that's the line earlier. Like everyone wants their own roof, their wall, their fireplace. Satisfying a fundamental age. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. Uh, you know, and I think in a city, like, it's like, there's movies. Uh, John Huston's second movie in uh, This Our Lives, uh, like, the hero of the movie just wants to do slum clearance. <laughs> this is 1943 or something, which is just kind of wild in retrospect. But in a small town, you have different ways of slums. I think a slum has the flavor of a company town. 
And I think in the real life Seneca Falls, that was, I was looking up slum Seneca Falls and there was like a history of like, how do you avoid the company town slums? And people are like railing against that. Uh, but as far as access to credit, access to money, in a lot of ways, it's a tool. You know, that's the, that's a real central question. How do you get power and leverage to change the environment and resources around you to do stuff? And I, I think you are right that like one of the ingredients here is is cheap land. Uh, and I think this is just a note. I was looking through a Crabgrass Frontier and I saw some notes. Uh, you know, the uh, building and loans, savings and loans, thrift and loans are called all those things. They were booming in all sorts of places when there was like cheap access to land, but they're almost unknown uh, in New York City, for instance, because there was essentially no way you could use them because really it is a way of pooling resources to build now, enjoy later, which is novel at the time because instead of having to save it up ahead of time, but like... If you can't have any place to build on, you know, you're kind of out of luck. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it's hard to talk, uh, I think, like about this movie or the plot of this movie without, you know, going into, uh, you know, building and loans and sort of like, I, I think, like their place in sort of the myth of this. So, I mean, like, you know, how do building and loans work? Uh, you know, I, I did sort of a little bit of outside reading on this uh, Richmond Fed. Uh, produced a, you know, a really interesting article, um, sort of like, uh, sort of about the history of these things. But, you know, long story short, uh, you know, these institutions were kind of uh, created in the UK during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, the primary purpose is to, you know, essentially, you know, pool resources together uh, among working class people, uh, you know, with the express purpose of, you know, being able to buy your own home. Um, you know, this is sort of the origin of, you know, what would, you know, become to be called, uh, you know, mutual aid, um, you know, which has had, you know, kind of like a renaissance as of late. Uh, there were a number of mutual aid societies, but uh, among them uh, are these, you know, kind of they, they're called building societies in the UK. And, you know, uh, essentially these were, you know, kind of a reaction to, you know, uh, you know, we have sea growing wages and for the first time, you know, working, you know, factory workers. Uh, you know, do have enough capital perhaps to, you know, if given a good credit line, uh, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, buy a home. And so when they, you know, kind of get to the U.S. in the 19th century, that's sort of the role that they play, um, where essentially working maybe lower middle class people, you know, buy shares in a building and loan corporation and more or less, uh, you know, take turns, you know, being able to, you know, leave a, you know, down payment and, you know, pay off the house. And, you know, uh, and I, I think there's there were multiple iterations of this, but in many cases, these things would, uh, you know, sort of be terminated after everyone's shares matured and everyone was able to, you know, take out a loan and, you know, I, I guess, like, essentially pay it off. Um, but it, it's just kind of, you know, interesting because this is before, you know, the FDIC when these things were created. And so, you know, talking about, you know, who gets debt and who gets access to, you know, credit to do something like buy a house, um, you know, that's really kind of where these things have find their origin. So one can really understand why, you know, someone would view this as, you know, very, uh, you know, egalitarian, you know, anti-establishment, a way to get around the powers that be to um, buy a house and, you know, not pay rent to people like Mr. Potter. Yeah, I, I think that the the building loan, um, the, the appeal of it is, is very clear. What's interesting to me, though, is that you can see the uneven impact of banking regulation on 
the building and loans because the, these are these small credit institutions. The fact that they had that we're putting these bank banking regulations starting in like the the thirties into the the credit markets means that like you have basically a bumbling uncle who's in charge of making these deposits uh, at the building and loan, and he like biffs it means that the building loan is suddenly like really under the gun. And so the, th that whole crisis is precipitated by the bank examiners, the regulation. And so um, just to say, like, in terms of the anti-monopoly, um, how we get around the idea that, like, that uh, we have that monopoly power with Mr. Potter and the bank and whatnot, is that if we try to, like, if, depending on how we institute these regulations, we could end up driving these kind of, like, you know, well-meaning credit institutions into the ground. Uh, and Connor, you mentioned, uh, you know, at the top of the hour, like the idea that, you know, post 2008, we're much tighter about our credit and we're in increasing um, like our um, capital requirements for a lot of these banks and, and whatnot. And so like, but that has impacts on these small and medium sized banks in terms of when they hit that, those reporting and, and capital call thresholds. So just to say that like, it's tough to kind of, you know, you could either go into the the anti-monopoly and we're going to break break Mr. Potter's stuff up. So everybody kind of has to deal with the bank examiner's burdens equally. Or we go the full Matt, Matt Brunig and we just have one big thing that we have a, uh, a, a big monopolist institution where people are, you know, uh, I guess leaning into the accelerationist mindset where people are suddenly being like questioning why are we tolerating Mr. Potter um, and his bank and his bus line and his department stores and whatnot. Um, but that kind of monopoly versus bigness versus smallness argument that is like persistent throughout kind of American center left left discussions. It, it shows up kind of obliquely here. Yeah, it's it's something you see different threads on a different like post-war movie, The Best Years of Our Lives. A major part of that movie is about creditworthiness of people coming back from war. It's like, oh, I can vouch for this guy, uh, and I think it's a big thing too. It's like this idea of okay, like we there's a recognition that access to credit is basically in the big scheme of things a big man-made fiction. And really, it's like, how do we administer it and who gets it? It's really a question of kind of who has access to this commonwealth. And in this movie, it's adjudicated, well, you kind of need one good guy who can say, hey, you deserve it. You deserve it. He's like, he's very lenient. He gives he gives money to people who I think objectively are probably not good credit risks. But because he's a good guy, you trust him. I wonder who's not getting loans here. Uh, but it's uh, that's Mark. I mean, that, but that's a good, good question, because we, we look at Bailey Park. You know, this is the like the titular um, achievement of the Bailey family. And do we see any black families who live in Bailey Park in the movie? Like we only see one black resident of the town. The only people was, right that they were that they were yeah. given uh, given a loan, right? I mean, right. that's the implication. Yeah. But to, to to say that like Bailey, the like the who has access to credit is a very uh, some uh, some circumscribed uh, uh, answer. Like Bailey Park, they described it as like. Um, an area of garlic eaters, so it's like the the ethnic whites, so to speak, of Italians and southern other Southern Europeans, and so you know maybe you know a lot of people are are forced to suffer and live in uh, the Potter's Fields um, rental housing slums, 
Um, but for the people, you know, people who can access credit from the Main Street Bank, they can get a mortgage in one of the Tony subdivisions uh, that probably have like explicit uh, uh, racial and probably like ex- racial restrictions, but also probably excluding like Italians and stuff like that. And whereas Bailey Park is like, well, we're more progressive. We allow people from the southern half of Europe to live here. Yeah. Frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Bailey Park, that development of that of that subdivision is like in the middle of the homeowner uh, loan corporation and uh, redlining and, and kind of deed restrictions and all the type of tools of racial exclusion that like created the kind of spatial segregation that we have in every basically every American metro. And so you you must presume that like Bailey Park was like segregated either be via deed restriction or some other credit credit means. Like so just to say that like, yeah, again, like who has access to credit movie? The people who are the servants in the Bailey household are probably not getting access to a loan to live in Bailey Park. Yeah, I, I think it's you know it's you talk about kind of the role of kind of federal policy. It's really like just as far as like here's like a rough rough uh, you know framework that I've seen before you know the 1890s. There was essentially no mortgages even short term unless it was real like money making revenue. Like you know if there was nothing for owner occupiers, uh, and this kind of slightly loosened up. But before 1916, they said like. There's actually explicit national legislation saying you could not provide long-term uh, credit for for real estate loans, so like that was unheard of. So built like savings and loans were the only games in town, but it was really after 1932 is when the Federal Home Loan Bank Act, uh, which was sponsored by the Home Builders of America, aka the Realtors, uh, you know that was expanded precipitously as part of. You know, it's, it's it's business, but it is also part of a moral vision of uh, trying to create, you know, largely whitewashed, you know, uh, uh, communities of homeowners. They're autonomous. And uh, this was a reason that the federal government said, you know, we will support uh, the expansion of ownership by by supplying this uh, this credit. And I think I think it's worth noting, like the the building and loan movement really did have a Puritan air to it. This was about creating more healthful communities by people who, like, were going to become homeowners. And it really is this idea of, like, how the movie is. This movie is really about not really one person, but one building and loan institution. What is the effect on a town? And really, it it lifts this entire town out of vice. <laughs> this, in, like, just, like, incredible, like, just nothing but bars in, like, this downtown and people just living lives of prostitution and whatnot, and then suddenly everyone's living healthful and good and like solid citizen lives, uh, which is it's it's certainly in the and I think the only difference between kind of in a very backwards you know kind of white supremacist vision in this is that Frank Capra believes that that Italian should be part of it. <laughs> that's, that's the bold vision here. Well, okay, I, I think you know this is this idea of lifting everyone up or, you know, certain people up out of poverty, uh, you know, through home ownership and, you know, kind of this like class solidarity uh, among homeowners or would be homeowners, you know, through this, you know, lending institution, you know, that is, you know, Bailey's building and loan. 
Um, you know, I think you really, you know, see this in, so there are two crises that, you know, uh, the Building and Loan Association goes through in this movie. So the first one is a, you know, run on the bank, essentially, in the early 30s. 32. Um, 32. And, you know, I, I remember there's, you know, this, you know, this one scene where, okay, well, they're, you know, you know, George Bailey and, you know, his now wife, you know, runs back and they ultimately have to, you know, sort of pay everyone off to, you know, not actually do a bank run and, you know, kind of collapse the, you know, financial institution. And I remember very, you know, specifically, you know, George Bailey says this line, you know, when they're, you know, asking where their money is, because of course, you know, any kind of financial institution doesn't actually have everyone's money sitting in a vault. It's, you know, held in assets. And he says, you know, your money is, you know, in Joe's house. Uh, you know, uh, you know, he says something to the effect of, you know, this is, you know, Potter's not lending, he's buying. Uh, you know, he has the bank, he has the bus lines, he has the department stores. Classic monopolist move, which is just uh, be able to uh, be a vulture in downturns. And more or less, he takes this pitch of taking only what you need until the bank opens and not, you know, kind of, you know, sort of collapsing this, you know, mortgage lender is that, you know, we're all in this together as, you know, property owners and, you know, you know, kind of everyone is acting as both sort of a, you know, lender and a borrower in this institution. And so, you know, I think like up from your bootstraps kind of kind of mindset here, you know, even if you don't have external funds, you can just get a bunch of people together. And if you like kind of just all borrow from each other in a really divvied up way, suddenly you have kind of money you can use now instead of later. And of course, we see this at the end of the movie, the uh, famous ending where everyone throws their money into a pot in the same kind of way that the magic of the long-term mortgage makes money out of nothing without affecting real resources. At the end of the movie, everyone is able to basically find a little bit of money in the pockets of this community and uh, get out of this jam without really changing anything. It's, 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 uh, it's a bit of a magic trick. So in terms of like this idea of... Um... You know, Mark, you had mentioned before, like the building and loans and like it only ever works in places where the land is cheap. Yeah. Um, I just thinking about this is like the Bedford Falls is described as a place where it's like dominated by Mr. Potter in terms of uh, industry, retail, banking, transit, all these different aspects of life, uh, rental housing. But oddly enough, like he does not control peripheral greenfield land where um, you know, future owners of Bailey Park homes are able to, you know, purchase land, subdivide it, and and build on it. And so, I, what's strange to me is I feel like that, that gets us into this this weird space where Bailey is once a monopolist in in a certain way, who's able to control all these key aspects of the economy in Bedford Falls, but somehow he, he does not have the ability to prevent or collude with other landowners to um, prevent them from selling to presumably the building alone or somebody else to like create these subdivisions that are like eating his lunch and taking his tenants. Um, so I, I, I think that just shows is like, you know, this movie has a strange idea of like, what is the domination of Bedford Falls by Mr. Potter? Is it like a monopoly of kind of a, a company town, as you say, or is it a local elite um, is it like Mr. Potter is representing like a local elites who are working together and, and he's personified those local elites personified in Mr. Potter. 
Um, but the fact that he's not, he can't somehow, he, even though he controls all the, the the banks and all these other institutions, he cannot bring the adjacent Greenfield uh, landowners to heal. It, it, it seems kind of strange to me. Well, you know, I would say having like, grown up in a place with a having grown up in a place with a lot of like ag land that turned into subdivisions. Those people all tend to like like each other and work with each other and go golfing with each other. Yeah. Um, and the idea that they would not cooperate to, to um, squeeze out the uh, the the people who are trying to undercut them would be strange. I think one one thing it's like you know I think drive to qualify may apply here, which is drive until you can't be you know kind of uh, lassoed in anymore by Mr. Potter. And I think this kind of does when you talk about kind of social engineering through suburban healthful development in the 1930s. This kind of does jive with real facts. Going to Cincinnati, for example, one of the like the kind of Garden City projects by the New Deal was Green Hills. And it is not adjacent to Cincinnati. It's like, in fact, you have to go pretty far. It was not transit connected at the time either. You know, it was like you had to drive to get there. It was pretty far out. And I think, man, that's the thing too. I don't know how far you have to go to get to Bailey Park. Uh, but I think, you know, it. at some point you can drive out of town. And like, I think that might be what, you're, what, what, what it takes here to, you know, finally get some land that, that you're able to develop on. I mean, but but that maybe that I mean that actually I feel almost tracks with like American development patterns even better, right? Like we're like because uh, we can't access that that high value core land uh, to build you know low density single family homes, uh, we have to like go further afield, and it's more it's more car dependent and all these kind of things, and like we don't see that like like imagine I think here's the like it's not a counterfactual, but like. Imagine Bedford Falls in 2021. Like, what would Bedford Falls look like? You described like small towns in, in Ohio before, but I imagine it's somewhat similar. Oh, I'm, I I think it it would look like it like many numbers of deindustrialized Rust Belt towns. And the real life one is has I, I think one of its main industries is being nostalgic. Oh, we're the real life Bedford Falls. <laughs> I think if you go to Central yeah. Falls. Well, I mean, yeah, nostalgia is its own. Uh, yeah. you know, his own currency. But, I, mean, they, I, I saw that I, I, I took a look at that as well. And I saw that Seneca Falls actually disincorporated because they found that the taxpayers would save $950 per year uh, on uh, relying on county services rather than incorporated Seneca Falls services. So like literally mm. just kind of fading into the countryside, um, not, like having not being a corporate entity anymore. And, and so that's, I mean, is that the path that, like, even, like, the idea, like, is there some way, is there some world where, like, Bedford Falls uh, is saved and, like, the Capra S vision? I mean, like, I feel like the, the one hint of that that we get is that, you know, George Bailey himself is a rehabber. You know, he's a, you know, he's a back to the, back to the hate Asbury type guy who's taking an old Victorian and fixing it up. Yeah. And moving his family into there. And so, like, is that, like, the hint of, like, the the way out? Is that, like, they're going to, you know, fix up all the old, old homes and all the people who are uh, middle class, these old uh, rotting homes that they flipped? Like, they, I feel like that's the only way that you can try to get out of that, um, of that predicament. It's, it's kind of weird. You talk about, like... The town seems like in the time of this movie, honestly, you don't expect to see real decline, you know, up till 1946, if this tracks real world small towns. 
But within the movie, everything is well preserved with the exception of in the middle of a very bustling street, there is like one Victorian house which is just fallen into complete disuse circa 1928. Uh, And on a very eventful day in 1932, which is the day of their wedding, the day of the bank run, and the day they move in, uh, at the moment, this is, I mean, apparently it has a purchase price of effectively zero dollars. Because the the savings and loan, the building and loan, completely undercapitalized, has no assets, and they use their entire two thousand dollars of their kind of getting started fund to you know float the uh, the building and loan. But somehow they're able to move in that day. It's like oh we we bought, we bought this place. Uh, I don't know how much they paid. Probably not much. But uh, yeah, it's just comp- like no no takers. And in fact, we know if if he did not exist, this would have stayed abandoned for uh, you know another uh, thirteen years. Just no interest in this in this in this house. Just kind of this weird fanciful idea that rehabs are just there, uh, free for the taking. All you need is elbow grease to <laughs> just get get working. Yeah, yeah. I thinking about this movie after watching it is you see a lot of kind of like the basic American dream, you know, myths about you know cities and suburbanization and you know everything else at play. Uh, you know, to me, it suggests that a lot of these, you know, I guess like you know, spooks of the mind as as you know, you could call them uh, are, you know, significantly older than the forties, you know, de-slumming, you know, I think, you know, became, you know, significantly more popular um, in the twenties, just as a concept as like urban planning was, you know, becoming a profession. And, and yeah, I I think you see a little bit of that everywhere. I mean, I I guess that's a good question to me. It's just like, what was the urban, like, where were the planners at in Bedford Falls? Like the planners who were like letting the, the slum conditions of Pottersville or Pottersfield um, prevail, but also allowing like leapfrog suburban development outside of it. There was like car reliant, like completely like the, it seems like the plant, like planning in Bedford Falls completely fell on its face. Um, and we, and we see like auto dependency rising throughout the, the entire time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, like the, the, like in the third act, the third act starts with George Bailey getting drunk, driving his car and hitting a tree because he, you know, it's, that's like modern, modern sicknesses. the city they built, right? Yeah. Come back here, drunken fool. Get this car out of here. No, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, we, I think you like 1935 in the movies when Bailey Park exists, I would, I would suspect Bailey Park is outside the jurisdiction. I think it is, I think it is his own it's 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 outside the planning realm of, of Bedford Falls. Because there's but, no regional planning. We don't do that in America. Yeah, no. Uh but on top of it too, like I it's it's such a funny thing in the movie too that like the rest of it, it does evoke this New York sleepy, lovely town. You go to Billy Park, it is like I guess it seems inspiring. It's like all these clean houses with a yard. But one it's extremely ugly, but then too, it doesn't even pretend to be New York. It is clearly Southern California. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like San Fernando Valley is what it looks like. I believe it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like it's like it's like desert desert grass in every way, and then kind of like very short, sh- you know, shorn hills on, like on top of it or something. It's it's like you're leaving the lushness of New York and just going to this desert 
And I think that's it. Oh, this is the future. I think like, you know, here would be, you know, interesting to make some comparisons. So you have, you know, in this idealized version where George Bailey lives, he's been born, you know, building alone exists It you know, gets, you know, all the garlic eaters out of the slums or whatever. And the scary, spooky alternative of Pottersville um, is pretty stark. And I think it, you know, shows that what Capra and probably a lot of other Americans of the time viewed as, you know, kind of like all the negative things uh, about urban built form. It's like, what does George Bailey see, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, the angel, you know, first, you know, shows him, you know, Pottersville is it's, you know, uh, you know, big, you know, nightlife, uh, a lot of, you know, nightclubs. Uh, I believe that there was like a fight club there. Uh, you night, baby. Less shows. Yeah. gambling halls that's a, yeah like losing the movie house that's i i do i do rue that you know they close down the bijou it you, really the you know in the movie how you know urban space is you know i think categorized is purely residential sprawl is seen as you know mostly virtuous um but you know mixed use uh, things where there's a nightlife and people are, you know, out and about and I, I suppose drinking and doing other vices uh, in the evening, this is cast as, uh, you know, being, you know, potentially the worst thing uh, that could happen to uh, a city. Yeah, I think the movie, it, it, it does show two different points. I think the two versions of kind of degraded slum living. And it, yeah, I think in Pottersville, you see the urban rot, which is yeah people doing nightlife stuff. But then also the boarding house is kind of this, this density is growing even within the small town. But the other model is there is, I think the Potter's Field is supposed to be kind of like a slightly rural kind of it's just a bunch of crummy shacks rented at rack rents uh but we see yeah martinis moving out and it's like you don't see much of it it's just a very run down you know shack we has his goats and stuff before it goes to, to bailey park and it's it's soon after that that we see basically an analysis of the bailey park business model uh this is in mr potter's office his rent collector is talking to him about this and says, hey, you, you let these people kind of grow under your nose. 15 years ago, there's only half a dozen houses. Now there's dozens, 90% owned. 15 years ago, a half a dozen houses stuck here and there. There's the old cemetery, squirrels, buttercups, daisies. I used to hunt rabbits there myself. Look at it today. Dozens of the prettiest little homes you ever saw. 90% owned by suckers who used to pay rent to you. Your potter's field, my dear Mr. Employer, is becoming just that. Every one of these homes is worth twice what it cost the building and loan to build. And I think you know the model is it says every one of these properties is worth twice what it takes to build, <laughs> which I think is just really funny. You could say like, oh, how do you do that on marginal land? But you know, if I think this movie is about scale. When Mr. Potter owns the town, he gets a scale. But you know, Bailey, in in some way, it's not really we're creating a completely decentralized Matt Stoller world. He is saying, if you can't beat them, join them. We're having our own scale as far as an exurban, you know, development. I, 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 I wonder about like the moment when Mr. Potter brings George Bailey into his office and makes them the, the offer to be a, a manager uh, for his uh, various businesses. The George Bailey is only like this, like the, the impact that he has in the world, like, the fact that like his mom doesn't own a uh, a boarding house and that his you know his wife is not a librarian closing up shop or whatever does that is only predicated on him working for himself basically at the building alone or does he like is the implication that, like 
if he takes a job from Mr. Potter, that he will be corrupted by that. Or like, or I think more likely, like the more real version of that is people take the job and like, I can, I can make Mr. Potter's business empire slightly less oppressive to the vast majority of people. Um, Cause I feel like that's what most people do. Very few people are turning down the, the, the big check um, and they're rationalizing it in, in different ways. And so it's just funny to think like the, the counterfactual It's like, yeah, what is, what is, uh, what does George Bailey do to like fix up Potter's field to make it slightly less oppressive for people? Um, does he, does, does George Bailey instead continue to do suburban uh, land development, but he actually sells it for what it's worth instead of half the cost as what the rent collector said, right? Like, is that, is that the, like the less oppressive version, but these are the kind of counterfactuals, right? Like of is, you know, what, what George Bailey considers like less oppressive than he can make uh, the Mr. Potter universe. Um, is it kind of just a continuation? Are we just getting more sprawl and slightly um, better slums? Um, I, I guess like the only thing I'd like to add on here is that, you know, it really, it really, the film posits that there is no good future for renters. Renting is just, you're totally you know, Mr. Potter or whoever, um, you you are screwed. Um, you know, uh, there, there's there's no future. The only way out of, you know, being under the thumb of, you know, kind of like, you know, a, a quite, you know, oppressive, extractive, you know, rentier society is to, you know, kind of, you know, buy your way out, essentially. Uh, there, there's, you know, this film, you know, I think aspires to like a grand progressive vision but the, you know, the extent of its imagination is, you know, uh, you know, buy in and, you know, kind of hope you can weather the storm, more or less. You, you mentioned that it's a, a pure progressive vision, Connor, but like, if you actually like look at what Frank Capra's like political beliefs, like he was a Republican, he was an anti-New Deal Republican. And so somehow he was like, like he was articulating this vision of like caring for other people, but in a almost like a um, uh, Hoover type of way, right? Of like, we're all just going to like work together or George H.W. Bush, like thousand points of light kind of style, uh, mutual cooperation. Uh, and, but it's so weird that now, like, you know, you can watch It's a Wonderful Life and a lot of, I think, center left people would, you know, like identify George Bailey as the hero. But Frank Capra probably thought of him as a small C conservative, um who is trying to like help people bootstrap themselves up and, and whatnot so it, it's interesting to see like that that political valence kind of change over time yeah i mean you see conservatives who are like co-op conservatives in some ways you know in, in the same kind of like a hand up not a hand out and i think it's too like in, in 1947 i think you know capra was asked like oh does this film have communist tendencies because it's anti you know rich guy which is kind of stupid. I mean, the film isn't really anti-capitalist in that sense. I mean, the film's framing really is largely futile. It is about this, you know, how it is not great to be a serf of this isolated town when you lack autonomy. And to gain autonomy, the only way is to really kind of land yourself directly. It doesn't really have any sort of model of, you know, escaping this feudalism within this, you know, essentially the scale of a city. I think the idea when a city really burgeons 
I think there's this idea of it's like everyone's helpless to it. You know, the idea of urban forces, I think we're always pretty abhorrent to Frank Capra. I think he felt it was too noisy. It was too much happening. Uh, And everyone is basically less empowered, with the exception of Nick, who is more empowered to run the bar, but he's just kind of a, a dick about it. Yeah, but like, so it's like the the Capra-esque or George Bailey vision is like give everybody their homestead. But like what we know about where Bedford Falls is going in terms of socio uh, or political economy over the next 70 years is it's going to like deindustrialize and you're going to have people who are working, working people who are tied to the land via their mortgage who do not have the mobility to go to where the jobs are. Yeah. And so like the idea that like, yeah, we're giving you the autonomy, but you need to stay on your, your half acre patch or your quarter acre patch or whatever it is. Uh, it's a certainly a, a, a strange type of autonomy. Um, feudal. Yeah. I think is it's nostalgia. It's for a, feudalism. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's not feudalism, but it's like a, you know, liberated surf, uh, dumb, right. Like where, you know, yeah, Jeffersonian you a, small property, right? Exactly, but like, but we, but we know that like somebody who buys a thirty-year mortgage on a Bailey uh, Park home in 1946, you know, if they don't have, if they don't refinance, they're going to be paying that mortgage off till 1976. Basically, you know, cratering deindustrialization at that point. So someone's going to have an asset that's free and clear when uh, even the suburban land values are going to be. In, in these kind of uh, industrial Midwest cities are going to be starting to crater. So like, what what have we done for the, and like the jobs have been leaving for, for a decade or two. So like, like what have we done for these people is, is to tie them to the land uh, to say that they can change the paint color and uh, um, fix the foundation if they want or, or whatnot. But like, other than that, like what do they get out of it? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, and it's, you know, this, this whole thing posits that like, yeah, small towns, it's, it's basically like a Chuck Marone small towns philosophy. Like small towns can be saved with these simple tricks. And like, it's the idea, like we have a, like you get this very rarely in, uh, in kind of economic studies, but you see a, a strict, uh, controlled study of what happens with or without a building and loans and it makes night and day. But yeah, in the long term, the centrifugal force is going to ride out the city it you know almost certainly is you know it's you talk about kind of like the seat of power and money of of Potter. He's already got charge of the bank. He's got the bus line. He got the department stores, and now he's after us. Is the local bank on top of that the bus line uh, and the department store, which are like two like industries. I, I love this because like in the early 20th century, department store was like the bugbear of kind of what is kind of centralized economic power. And, like, it was failing by the 1950s, you know, certainly the 60s. And bus lines, I think, probably in receivership before 1950 hit. <laughs> so, now, speaking about like, the class conflict in this movie is, you know, one thing that, you know, I keep thinking about ever since reading uh, Bonds of Inequality is, you know, the author, uh, Dustin Jenkins, makes this distinction uh, among the property class um, in his book. So there's, you know, big capital, medium capital, small capital, uh, you know, that, you know, have their own interests and, you know, have class conflict in cities. And I think you see that a lot in this movie. So, you know, more or less, you know, small capital being, you know, perhaps small time landlords, you know, homeowners, 
uh, you know, more or less seeing themselves in conflict with, you know, I guess middle and big capital represented by um, uh, Mr. Potter, who is a finance capitalist, but I guess like also a developer and, you know, uh, retail store magnate. And it's funny because, you know, I think a lot of, you know, in this movie and in, uh, you know, I think a lot of other contexts, you know, you hear, you know, perhaps at, you know, public meetings around affordable housing, as an example, of, you know, kind of small time property owners cast their specific, you know, property interests as this big, you know, progressive, you know, little guy, you know, versus, you know, Goliath, as it were. Um, and I think, I think you see that a lot in this movie. So, you know, I think that there's a, you know, I think a good reason, uh, that I think a lot of people see a, you know, kind of progressive aspirations in this movie is precisely because I think that's how, uh, this class of people often, you know, talk about themselves, at least when they're, you know, I guess going up against a developer or a bank or whomever. It's interesting to think about like the, you know, you're talking about different classes of property owners, Connor, but like. What about the? I feel like there's just a complete absence of the state in this movie. To the extent this, to the extent the state exists, it is the bank examiners who are likely state or federal. You have the district attorney, the red tape of these regulators making life like honest, honest working people their life hell just because they lose a, a little bit of money. It almost it almost reminds me of Ghostbusters with the EPA guy who wants to open up all the ghost containers, right? Like, but like. So you have the bank regulators and then you have also have the district attorney who's clearly on the take of Mr. Potter and you have the police who are also on the take of Mr. Potter. Yeah, if you're friends uh, with Bert, your life is good. If, if you're a stranger to Bert, he's going to shoot you within 30 seconds. <laughs> right. And then like you, you have, um, I, I just like, you have the school district, like the, the principal and the teachers and like, they exist, but they're a very kind of a benign force. Um, it's kind of it, it's nicely decentralized, like, I, I, which is like you just call your teacher and just chew her out, and then you know maybe yeah, it works I, or maybe her husband punches out in a bar, you know. Right, and then and then maybe the guy who operates the bridge, like he might be also a public employee. That's but like, the only good infrastructure in the movie is that there, there's really no there. The state is a very um, withered institution, but but what a strange um, what a strange reading of American life. In that, like, the state is this very, like, withered away institution in 1945, right? After, basically after 13 years of, of like, a bulging state apparatus, both in terms of, like, um, social programs and infrastructure development and just, like, giving people money to, like, paint benches and stuff like that. And then, like, massive defense spending and rent controls and price controls and rationing, all these things. But in Bedford Falls, the state is like, it's just a very anemic institution. It's just a funny except thing for, to think except about. Except for the war economy. He actually, he does do rubber drives and all this kind of things. The right, war economy. sure, sure. And then like, and if you do well by shooting Germans, then you get to have a, a you know lunch date with, with Harry Truman. That's, that's the uh, only... Yes, Harry Truman's <laughs> wife, but yes. Oh, yeah. And, and, and But to say that like... But this is a this this is the era of big government, right? Nineteen forty six, you know, we this the New Deal was not like ascendant. You know, basically, the the um, when the Republicans won Congress in nineteen forty six, where they were not able to gut 
most of the New Deal. Like the, the, the one thing they were able to gut was uh, the National Labor Labor Relations Act, right? Like that, like that's the one thing they were able to do. But Social Security and uh, other social spending and programs they remain. So we had a still we had a massive state apparatus which Frank Capra really disliked, and but it's all but absent from this this film, right? Like the New Deal, like it put uh federal officials labor uh, federal labor officials federal uh welfare officials federal um regulations in terms of race like they like in terms of defense industry like they were late they were um desegregating defense industries towards the end of the war like all of that is completely invisible from this movie and i think it's a very intentional choice by capra to to leave that say that like the, like we're talking we keep talking about like the slums of uh, Potter's Field versus the suburban sprawl of Bailey Park. But where is the like, um, where is the modernist housing that is near the core that is for people making 120% AMI and below? That's the utopian that, vision that of George Bailey exist. that you're told, don't pursue that. That's too dreamy. Right, exactly. Th- that's know? not an option for the, in, in this world, in this movie, right? Yeah. You only have the option of, the rental housing, the slums, and the ownership sprawl. And those are the only two things. There's no third vision which says, like, could we have cooperatives or could we have public rental housing that is a decent standard? And I think that's reflective of Frank Capra's personal political preferences. Yeah. And I think on top of that, too, you talk about kind of what is the role of kind of state power I think you you see a you see a framed portrait of Hoover on the wall. I don't think you ever see FDR's existence noted once in the movie. And you know Hoover is not trashed and in fact I don't think it's like I mentioned earlier the the Federal Home Loan Bank Act of 1932 that was a Hoover Act of 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 supporting uh savings and loans. Uh, which I think is perhaps you say oh that's the real way to do it. And this is kind of goes with the like today's uh, you know, pro home ownership, anti Blackstone, and also anti big bank mindset. In the idea, like this says, how do you square the knot of mass home ownership without getting banks rich? And this says, if you if you have a completely like kind of ground level mutual aid society, then this works. And one of the big threats is uh, Potter is going to buy it out, fifty cents on the dollar, and he is going to be the Blackstone of the town. And this is a fundamental threat, and but basically through pluck and not really external stuff, they're able to you know stay afloat here. Well, I, I think you know, and this is I, I guess mostly you know happens and becomes entrenched after the events of the movie. But you know, uh, you know, throughout, uh, you know, state help to subsidize mortgages is more or less invisible. Like that's not yes. considered a part of the welfare state. This is just homeowners, you know, would be homeowners just getting their due. This is just, you know, more or less a uh, a right, as it were. This, you know, this isn't a handout. This is, you know, mutual self, you know, mutual self help. Uh, you know, with under- some liquidity offered by the government. It's underwriting their risk in the same way that he underwrites risk of their loans. That's an invisible way to like hold people up instead of giving them a handout. Yeah, and the building and loan, like if you think about it, like. Clearly, like the deflationary pressures of the Great Depression would have like even with the federal in- interventions in the mortgage, mar- mortgage market, like it would have been difficult to really stimulate construction and, and get like new development at that time. But like post World War Two, the building and loan was like probably prepared to really just go gangbusters 
in development because you had intense housing demand from GIs coming back. You had, um, you probably had like plenty of years for uh, acquisition of land, speculative land acquisition to facilitate this and do the subdivisions and whatnot. And then you had like this whole institution of uh, mortgage finance or mortgage subsidies that the federal government had perfected by that time that were that were ready to go. So like it's it's funny. It's like you know the building loan is like going through this crisis. But there, if you if you if you fast forward six months from what Christmas Eve, uh, nineteen forty five. They're going to just be like doing so much business. They're going to be just like have so many uh, mortgages that they're issuing. And so I guess it's like this one moment of crisis. But, you know, George Bailey's probably going to end up retiring um, close to a millionaire if he wants to with this kind of with all this development. One thing that I read about, uh, you know, kind of in the background uh, of this is that apparently savings and loans corporations for the longest time were, you know, not nearly as prone to go bust during recessions, at least compared to commercial banks. Mm. And most of that had to do with the fact that, you know, if you're a, you know, a, a shareholder, a depositor at a, you know, building and loan association, uh, you had strict uh, limits on when you could actually uh, take out a deposit. Um, you know, they, they mentioned this briefly. Six months um, to get your money? Yeah, it's, yeah six, or six months, 60 days, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, whatever yeah. the, uh, you know, whatever George Bailey, you know, tells one of the bank run people. Um, and so, you know, the fact that, you know, kind of they have this, you know, hard lock on, you know, honestly, like people's money, um, you know, really, you know, you, you'd think at least during the 30s, uh, you know, the building and loan, you know, might have been in a you know better shape or at least should have been uh, in a better shape than uh, perhaps, you know, Mr. Potter's bank. Yeah, I don't really get that. If they don't have a right to take the money out, how is there a run? A run in a real bank, I kind of understand. But like, can't he just say, hey, see you know, 60 days for everybody, you know, and see you, see you then. Like, I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of I don't know if that's fanciful or that's real or what. But it would make more sense that like it would be more robust against these these runs. I was, I was seeing stats offhand. I think it was very stable for you know decades before the saving loan crisis of the mid '80s. Forty uh, percent of mortgages originated from savings and loans, which was the most in the field. So it was like thirty percent were like mortgage banks, twenty percent commercial banks, and then you know the rest were all other stuff. Uh, and now they're like basically almost non-existent. After the crisis, they just disappeared across the board. And a, a big part of this is we had explicit policy. I think largely the same kind of mindset that this movie says savings and loans are a real American way to make banking work. Uh, it doesn't really just work by itself. They had to have federal apparatus was created to make this happen. They had to have like... They are supplying the risk of savings and loans by giving regulations to other banks and giving a basically a bump to savings rates if you go to savings and loans. And that was in on the books for decades. Uh, and it was, still wasn't working at a certain point. And the, everyone in the federal government was like saying through the 70s, like, hey, this doesn't work anymore. What can we do? And it used to be a trade-off saying, okay, we will basically help your savers make more money, but you have to promise the money is going towards home ownership. And then, like in the 70s, said, okay, actually, yeah, uh, invest in anything. <laughs> you know, it's fine. It's fine. We're, we're good with this. And they bought a bunch of junk assets. And this is why, it's, <laughs> why they went belly up. But, you know, it's, I think the ideology of savings and loans, you know, it was pretty big. But, 
I don't know. Now, banks aren't even the main... Uh, 68% of all mortgages are originated by non-banks these days, which is pretty wild. You know, like Rocket Mortgage and all that stuff. Oh, I was going to say, you're not getting a home loan from GMAC or with your, F- or with your uh, Dodge... Uh, Charger or whatever it is. <laughs> what? What? What is? Is that GE or no? What is, yeah, GM. Like their their auto loan um, shop. You know, like they're just like they were doing more business pre two thousand seven in auto and consumer loans than they were selling cars. Interesting. Yeah, it's. I don't know. That's that's American economy. It's it's a big uh, multi level marketing scheme. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Is like ultimately the you know precipitating event that led to the savings and loan crisis was you know one high inflation and then two the Volcker shock, uh, more or less you know put these people um, you know kind of forced them to take risky bets uh, and you know because they you know one weren't regulated and two didn't have a uh, you know a lot of capital in the books so it's it's kind of interesting that you know these you know allegedly pure american institutions that help people you know buy their own homes you know really lived and died by the graces of you know kind of you know federal monetary policy and i think no one's really resolved that to this point of saying okay if savings and loans aren't the way forward and i think at this point based on the fact that like even based our best efforts they did not survive like what is the model because people want home ownership but they don't love the fact that banks make half the money. So, like, what, how do we resolve this knot? I think people, like, honestly, the pro-home ownership, uh, quote-unquote, left, I don't think has really ever kind of, you know, resolved this 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 paradox. I feel like that's why you hear more about CLTs and, like, like limited equity stuff, because um, it feels like a perhaps a more pure way to, one, ensure housing stability, but two, you know, kind of, like, a form of ownership, at least like when you're talking to progressive organizations. That's interesting. Yeah. Bailey Park is kind of almost a CLT in feel, except it wasn't, you know, it was so close. Oh, I was just looking for the web tweet that says, uh, imagine a paper about a housing asset appreciation as a consolation part for prize for stagnant wages called before Volcker, we lived in a society. Now we live in a house. Yeah. It's it, and that, it's such a good the, line. And that's the building and loan ideology, right? Like, you know, we're we're gonna get everybody in a house and when like that when when industries and venture falls start to falter, you have that asset. And hopefully, you know, you're in the the subdivision with the garlic eaters and not where black and Latino people were able to buy after nineteen sixty-eight. Like that's yeah, like the dividing line in terms of whether you're going to end up a winner or a loser in the asset appreciation game. Yeah, I'm not even sure, like you know, what the real like Finger Lakes region looked like. But the like the story of the 20th century, like Bedford Falls, if it's like many places, would have experienced a great migration, and this homeowner mindset would become like doubly twinged if if they're so fed with garlic eaters you know the just amount of like how virulent racism is going to transform the homeownership society of bedford falls in the decades to come is probably not gonna be pretty yeah i mean imagining just you know for reference right like san fernando valley where bailey park is in uh in like the real world um that's the that's the cradle of both uh, support for proposition 14 which overturned fair housing rules uh, laws uh, that were authored by Byron Rumford in, in 1962, the Prop 14 uh, passing in 1964. You know, San Fernando Valley is like the epicenter of that. 
Um, and then once again in 1978, uh, the San Fernando Valley is the epicenter of the Prop 13 tax revolt uh, by homeowners. So, like, you know, we we put all these people out, the garlic eaters out in these nice subdivisions, and then they go ahead and all the egalitarian ideas of, of building and loans and uh, mutual support. And, you know, we're going to build a nice high school with a gymnasium that also doubles as a pool. Like all those ideas like are just completely gutted uh, 10, 15, 20 years later. And you've created a class of people that are really, they care more about their property values than any other kind of uh, ideas about social democracy or even like a pluralistic society. I mean, that's the 46 was like the turning point, right? It's like the like the late 40s was really America's like last chance to actually, you know, really double down on, you know, doing, you know, support for organized labor, building out a welfare state, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, here, you know, you really see the, uh, you know, I guess the the birth of the deflationary block, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you talk about kind of, like what is like this is an enduring film. I mean, I think it is a it's a beautifully made film in all sorts of ways, but on top of it, like the message that people want to come away with is like every person's life matters. You know, it's good that you contribute to society. But in the movie, it kind of, you know, it's like, yes, you can make a difference if you do like, you know, real feats of saving people's lives. And then on top of it, it's like if you're like a busybody who does social engineering, yes, you can do you can make a big difference. And he's not like an or- ordinary guy. He's like an like he not really because he's he's likable. He's not a busybody, but the effect of his institutions are being a busybody kind of thing. And he's not really a member of like a society in that sense. Or the society is kind of like it is disappearing within the movie. And like that's, I, I think like in a in increasingly atomized you know, world, I think that like that's a message I think people, you know, you know, it's like looking for, oh, I might be atomized, but like they want to they want to believe that they're a part of society. Yeah, that is that is the movie. We were talking more about you know finance institutions than you know the storyline, but you know uh, George Bailey, you know it's 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 about him. Uh, but we learned a lot about the meaning of Christmas and so on. But uh, yeah, thanks thanks a lot, both of you for for being here. It was fun. Yeah, no, I, I you know happy holidays, guys. Really happy to learn that the true meaning of Christmas is you know easy credit. So I hope everyone gets you know uh, a credit line. It's true. This whole season, and I hope that you you know Santa gives you a. Uh race-restricted single-family home out in the suburbs this year. That's the dream. That's American dream. uh, (laughs) Just like Grandma used to make. (laughs) (laughs) So that's been our uh, breakdown of It's Wonderful Life through the uh, geo-cinematic lens. You can find all previous episodes of this podcast at the website seethecat.org. If you want to check out the uh, other film podcast I do, you can check that out at earfuloftheat.com. This is a presentation of Kisa Shu. Stanford. <laughs>